here we are, episode number 80 of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, yeah, we're down the road here, 80 episodes. It's been, uh, God, almost a year and a half, I think. Yeah, about a year and a half. So um, pretty interesting. I, uh, I like it. I'm picking up followers and uh, getting, getting a little more popular. You know, I really do probably at some point need to decide if I'm going to up my game and get better equipment other than the $10 Walmart microphone and and um, just using the freeware program to put all this together. Uh, I mean, there are guys with the podcast kits that cost hundreds and hundreds of bucks and have sound mixers and all that. Well, I don't really, I don't have any of that, obviously, but what I do have for you is straight talk and, you know my experience, which I I'm, I'm really enjoy sharing, and I really enjoy hearing from uh, people with questions. So don't forget, you can always send questions to uh, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can post them on our Podbean uh, site. You know, you can always post comments and questions there, and I will get to them, I promise you. So a couple of quick things, uh, you know, politics-wise, you know, Biden-Harris, hiding Joe Biden, you know, first he was hiding, then now they finally have coaxed him out of his basement, and they finally have shamed him into making some sort of, I saw a commercial, some sort of declarative statement against the rioting. But the bottom line is, you know, those rioters are his people. Even Harris said, hey, this isn't going to stop, and she kind of she kind of uh, applauds them. So they are now what I call the Biden-Yugend, and I've been using that all over Facebook, not all over Facebook, but on Facebook, and uh, <laughs> people basically like it. Just like the Hitler-Yugend, we now have the Biden-Yugend, and it's these punks that are going around and trying to intimidate and harass people, in addition to the burning, looting, destroying public structures, and you know, attacking the police and all the other bad things they're doing. These are these are very very bad people, as Donald Trump would say. Uh, haven't really seen this since uh, you know the the days of the 1960s, where I was too young to understand a lot of it, but. You know, the, the wave of urban terrorism that went across the country at that point was, was fantastic. Um, I, I saw a statistic, and, and you know, you always have to do deeper research, but on the face of it, 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 was, it was pretty uh, compelling. And that was between 1968 and 1980, there were 1,200, and I'll call them just terrorist bombs, that were ignited in the United States, where they would bomb a police station or bomb a police car or bomb something else. As a matter of fact, remember that Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn, those two friends of uh, Barack Obama's, uh, they were they tried to bomb a um, they tried to bomb a police station, and I believe they were going to bomb um, a, a non-commissioned officers club. Uh, on Fort Dix or someplace, they were going to bomb one. Uh, you know, and the, the, the funny part about that, the ironic part about it, I should say, is that frankly, most of those clubs are frequently frequented by heavy population of African Americans who are in the service because there are a lot of non-commissioned officers who are African Americans. So you bomb one of those and you're bombing the brothers, you know. I mean, so really, who are they, uh, who are they trying to stick up for? But be that as it may, you have Biden and Harris. They refuse to denounce it. I mean, you know, the, the Trump ads are fundamentally true. Um, if they get in, Second Amendment goes away, and this radical left-wing agenda will take over, and they will punish the middle class. They will punish us. They will punish everybody who they think put Donald Trump in office or supports something other than what Biden and Harris believe in. Of course, you have to look at for some humor in some of this. I mean, Biden still, when he gets in front of a camera, he'll just stumble and lock up and freeze. So I don't really think that these debates are going to go particularly well for him. But everybody's saying that, and it appears that the bar is pretty low. So if, if Biden survives the debate without a 
a horrific meltdown or, or whatever else, or one of those feeding the pigeon moments that he has. If he survives that, he'll probably be declared the winner, no matter what the substance is. And Harris, you know, it's something that happened to Barack Obama, too. The news media, and, and they actually kind of got called out for this when Obama was president. I don't know if it's a function of the cameras, the lighting, or whatever else. But when it suits them, they photograph, it was both Obama and now it's Harris, their skin tone is being dark or very, very light. And lately with Harris, they've been whitening her up. Um, now, I don't really care. Nobody cares about a race. Nobody cares. It's whether you agree with her ideas or not. I would vote for Ben Carson over Mitt Romney, and that's certainly not race-based. Uh, you know, so it goes on and on. I, I, my, my suspicion is is that the people who run the newsrooms who are so disdainful of the American people, so disdainful of the electorate, especially in the Midwest, that they actually think that matters. And it's a conscious decision on their part to make, to make Harris look more white so that maybe suburban females, suburban housewives, suburban women and mothers will identify with her more closely. I would not be surprised if that's the case, but I think it's very funny that that uh, you know they they they're whitening up Harris to try to get to get more of that white blue collar vote, <laughs> and it's it's really comical. And you notice that since she got the nomination, they haven't said a peep, a peep. The reason I know this is true is that they have not said a peep about her race or her background after the, after she was nominated and, and uh, became the, the vice presidential nominee. It's like, oh, okay, we, we checked that block, so now we're good. And, uh, you know, now they're, they're busy going, well, you know, the big block of votes is out there in the suburbs. So <laughs> they're basically uh, making her up and, and, uh, and putting her out there to, to try to get that vote. So I thought that was pretty funny. Something that's not funny is the poor story of the guy in uh, the guy in Portland who was just murdered on the street for being a Trump supporter? You know, um, I have to tell you, stay away from these riots. Stay away from as much as you want to get involved, as much as you want to express yourself and, and kind of go up against these people. That's not really the smart thing to do. And, and fortunately, the feds. When they took this, when they took the murderer down, the guy decided to resist and uh, got shot full of holes. So at least justice, there was some measure of justice done there. But, uh, you know, be very, very careful. Uh, maintaining a low profile is something very, very smart to do. That brings us to the Kenosha Kid, this Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, Rittenhouse, I, you know, I kind of go back, there's... There's poor judgment on his part, but there's also the inalienable right, inalienable, boy, did I mangle that or what, inalienable right of self-defense. And uh, if I were him, I would not have gone near Kenosha, especially at 17 years old. And you look at and he's kind of a chubby-faced little guy. You know, and he's he's somebody gave him an AR-15. They first they tried to say, well, he brought it across straight state lines, and that was a crime. I don't think that's a crime, and he didn't bring it with him anyway. But anyway, he's out there, and he's got an AR-15, and they're protecting some sort of family business. So he has standing to be there. The next thing is he kind of falls in with this defense group, who the news media is calling a militia. They're they're not. I mean. When you have people who are just kind of banding together to protect their homes and businesses, you know, I, I suppose in the purest constitutional 1800s sense, they are a militia, but it's not the militia connotation that we, we see today of, of, you know, armed group of, of uh, right-wing radicals who are, who are out there. So anyway, he's, he's with these people. He gets separated. He's in a used car lot trying to basically stop it from being trashed. Some piece of garbage Antifa dude named Rosenbaum comes in after him. So the Kenosha kid basically uh, caps him three times, three or four times. 
Uh, if I remember right, he's got two body shots, one grazing wound to the head, and one in the hand. So I guess it was four shots. And took that guy out, you know. Um, 5.56 five, is not a wimpy cartridge. You know, I, I remember all the guys who used to call it the poodle gun cartridge and everything else. But if it's coming out, uh, you know, close range especially, and it's probably just the cheapest ball-style ammunition you could find. And maybe it been, you know, 2.23 instead of... Uh, instead of uh, genuine 556 who knows but uh, you know effectively he, he he cashed that guy out stamped him paid in full right there then tried to get away and was being pursued by a group of other people and that's when you know that's when you start seeing the videos where it looks like he falls down some guy comes up hits him with a skateboard and then apparently is going to come around and and uh hit him or kick him again, so he, he shoots that guy, and he actually shot him right through the heart, and the guy staggers away about four paces and collapses, and, and he's he's paid in full right there. And then another guy with a gun comes up, and the Kenosha kid shoots him and basically blows his bicep off. And so then that guy is, you know, grievously wounded right there. And the Kenosha kid's able to get up and get away. And... Uh, yeah, after, after shooting a couple of those guys, uh, there weren't a whole lot of other volunteers who wanted to rush in and, uh, and subdue them. So they, the news media, of course, tried to portray this as a shooting spree. It's clearly self-defense. And I'll tell you this right now, he's going to walk. Now, it may be long and it may be ugly, but he, he'll walk on this, I guarantee it. Just from what's on the camera in the video, he's, he's going to walk. Um... You know, but it's it's another thing of don't put yourself in that position. Hey, if they're going to trash Kenosha, let them trash it. Pick up the insurance money later and rebuild. Because, frankly, you know, going there and trying to go up against them, it's not going to end well for you. Even if you're in the right, like the Kenosha kid apparently is, um, you are going to be all of a sudden involved in the long, onerous proceedings of the justice system. And, and frankly, it's just not worth it. It just is not worth dealing with all that just so that you can, you know, stand up for what's right. I mean, there's there's a time and a place, and I'm not sure that that time and place has has really shown up yet. I mean, now if a guy's throwing Molotov cocktails at your house, hey, have at it, man. <laughs> put, them, put them all out. That's, that's a different situation, but... When you arm yourself, go about 20 miles away from home, and you're on the streets, um, you know, it's got to be clear-cut self-defense. And somebody's going to do this. Now, it looks like this this kid is, is going to be in the clear. It, it'll be ugly, but he'll be in the clear. But I guarantee that there'll be some case where the, the there won't be video, the facts will be muddled, and somebody's going to wind up facing the music for that. And uh, even though these are anti-fawn, Black Lives Matter thugs and terrorists, um, that's just what's going to happen. Um, I, I would not want to do this. Defending home is one thing. Defending ideals out on the streets, as much sympathy as you have for the cause, and how you think it's right. Sometimes what's right may not be the smart thing to do. It may, it may be the more valiant and the most... The most demonstrative thing to do, but it may not be the smartest thing to do. So people should think twice about engaging these people in violence on the streets. It's that's what we have the police for. Let them let them do the job, whether they're doing a good job or a bad job. Let them let them do it. And I'm gonna just end the political part of this by just saying that you know one of the most ugly things I have ever seen in politics. The most vicious and ugly thing I've ever seen is the story that accused Donald Trump of, of saying that the uh, American cemetery in France was, you know, loaded with losers and suckers, and he wasn't going to waste his time to do that. It's proven as a lie. Even some of his opponents, uh, the former chief of staff, John Kelly, who doesn't really like Trump, and John Bolton, who certainly doesn't like Trump, have said that that's a lie. And, and if you know Trump, just from his character, you know he's not going to say that, would never say that. That is an ugly, vicious, political 
lie that only an extreme low life would say. Extreme low life. I mean, Obama was never accused of saying anything like that. Yeah, you know, and, and Trump did have his disagreements with John McCain. And I, I'll tell you this, I do too. I do too. I think John McCain was a guy who, and I voted for him. I voted for him, and I regret that vote, actually, when I saw what a vindictive, nasty little man he really was. And I also regret my vote for Mitt Romney. I think Mitt Romney was even worse. A phony, a preppy, phony, rich boy liar is what Mitt Romney is. So... I, I do I do I know he got into it and he never should have said John McCain wasn't a hero because John McCain was a hero. He's a POW for six crummy years in a North Vietnamese prison. But you know, John McCain used to hide behind that quite a bit. He would he would literally lay it on people and then if they if they gave it back to him, he would hide behind his POW veteran status. So you know, John McCain was no angel either. But Trump never said this about the uh, people buried in that cemetery, and in fact, um, I've got I had a relative buried in that cemetery. So I and I I feel very confident that Donald Trump never said that. So, as far as I'm concerned, people who spread those kind of lies, just on that alone, they have no reason, no right to be around and to be saying anything, and they should be excluded from the political process. This is another reason to vote against Biden-Harris because obviously their apparatchiks put this out. And frankly, it's the lowest thing I've ever seen. It is so low that uh, it's really disgusting. So let's go now to the what I consider to be the best part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And I've uh, got a couple of interesting ones here. The first one is... And we've talked about this. I've talked about this before. Talked about this before. What could possibly entice you to buy a What Would Stoner Do 2020 rifle? And for those who don't know, I think I sometimes I've thrown this out and never really explained it. It's a concept, ultra lightweight AR-15 style rifle that has been put together using the most modern materials and essentially designed for for game usage uh kate was come up with by these these guys on in range tv and it was uh it's being marked made by one of their friends some dumpy guy who 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 wanders around in the background of their videos um and also brownells brownells sells the completed rifles so it's it's basically a business venture between an internet content creator a small manufacturer and a large dealer distributor which is brownells and as i have said in the past uh brownells makes the best ar-15 a1 or the best a original ar-15 the best m16 a1 clone whatever you want to call them their line of retro rifles are just as good if not better than anything colt put out i'll tell you that just straight up right out there uh they are excellent quality so this is not bashing on brownells at all in fact i think for the money brownells are are some of the best ar-15s ever you know they just ever so this is not bashing on brownells this is in fact i i have a lot of respect for them but this what would stoner do rifle okay what would possibly induce me to buy one and the answer is i i don't think there's anything why would i buy the lightweight version of a lightweight rifle and the answer is i why would i buy diet version of diet coke i mean no it's already a lightweight rifle so why do i need it more lightweight and and i suppose their answer would be well you can always there's no such thing as too light a rifle. I completely disagree. And uh, I, I think that, you know, for game purposes and, and as a range toy, these things will probably be just fine. But I also think that, um, you know, there, there really is not any serious use for them because when you sacrifice weight and mass sometimes, you sacrifice durability and reliability and time will tell how these things go. And I'll tell you this right now. I'm not spending $1,700 on a rifle that 
has got basically a plastic polymer. I know it's polymer, but it's a plastic receiver and non-adjustable buttstock. They, I guess there's a way you can kind of put put some length on that buttstock if you want, but you know, it, it just to me just doesn't seem like it's uh, worth it. I mean, it just doesn't seem worth it. If you are so frail that in a match, the difference between a five and a half pound rifle and a seven pound rifle, which is only a pound and a half, is that big of a difference? Um, or if you're so good that that little bit of weight makes a huge difference, well, then I guess go for it. But I think for almost everybody else, that is just not a, a good economy. That's just not the way to spend your money. You're much better off buying something a lot more modest in the size profile you want, whether it's 16-inch barrel or, heaven forbid, a 20-inch barrel, and, uh, you know, buying ammo and practicing. Of course, nowadays it's hard to find ammo, but, you know, when, when this returns back to normal, um, you're much better off doing that. You're much better off practicing than trying to buy an advantage. And, um, yeah, I've got a... I've got an example. i got an example of that. I was with the friend of the podcast, a guy who follows us and, and is, is, is really solid. Uh, we did a shooting competition. We put together a three-man team, and two of the guys on it were using SIG 550s, and I was using, uh, you know, just an M forgery, you know, a double-star M forgery. And, you know, we had a great time. The weight of the rifle was never a problem. The weight of the rifle was never a problem. So I, I think that, you know, that, and this was under pretty arduous, it, it lasted most of a day, not a full day, but most of a day. And it was in some really humid Midwest heat. And, uh, yeah, we were, we were pretty smoked at the end of it, but... That had nothing to do with the weight of the rifle. That had to do with all the conditions and everything else. And some of the physicality of the match. But basically, uh, rifle... Um, you know, rifle uh, weight wasn't an issue with those types of rifles. So with the AR-15 rifle, is it light enough to make a difference? Is the what would Stoner do rifle light enough to really make a difference? And I would I would say no, It's it's really not. So there's nothing that would entice me to buy it. There's nothing that would entice me to want it and spend that kind of money on it when I know if I just have a more modest rifle set up correctly and I practice a lot, that's going to pay off a lot better. That's going to pay off a whole lot better. Sometimes buying, and, and I've said this over and over again, buying the most high-speed thing does not make you better. Buying a... <laughs> Buying a Stradivarius violin does not make you a concert musician, because it certainly wouldn't make me one under any circumstance. So, you know, that's what you really have to look at. Um, you know, one of the one of the funniest things is shooting a twenty-two bullseye, now called precision pistol. I basically, in addition to my high standard, I bought a second-hand Walther, a GSP, which is a very nice pistol. And the first couple times I shot it, I uh, had essentially identical scores to what I was shooting with my high standard. So I was like, well, I don't know that this is such a great idea. Maybe this was spending money that didn't really pay off. Now, as I've gotten more used to it, my scores have, have climbed, not exponentially, but noticeably. So, you know, there is a there is a quality thing, but it's all linked to practice. It's not... If you put just a better gun in somebody's hand, quote, better, quote, unquote, meaning more expensive or theoretically better and not actually practically better or enough to matter, um, things really aren't going to change that much, except uh, your bank balance will be a lot lower. So anyway, though, there's nothing that would induce me to buy it. I can't think of anything. I don't really care for the hollow sun optics. You know, I'm sure to some people they're okay. Um. I notice they advertise their EOTech equivalent as being fully enclosed, meaning clunky. You know, it's this big clunky unit up on top. And I think all those things are kind of made in China. I'm not really, uh, I'm just not that revved on them. I'm just not that excited about them. So anyway, that's the, uh, that's the story on that. And I think they're actually more expensive than the EOTech. 
Maybe I'm wrong. You know, it takes about four bills, I guess. And but I think I think some of those hollow suns, certainly some of their models are, are more expensive. So anyway, that's that's kind of where that is. No, I would not ever buy one because I'm not going to buy the diet version of Diet Coke or the light beer version of light beer. You know, it just just doesn't uh, it just doesn't offer for what I have to sacrifice. It doesn't offer me enough. Okay, what is the stupidest trend in combat rifles? Huh, now that requires a little bit of thought. But I can think of one right offhand. I can think of the stupidest trend in all combat rifles across all armies, across civilian rifles that are that are the kind of mimic or or clone uh, combat rifles. The biggest and worst trait is that you have an M16A1 that's got a 20-inch barrel. Well, but you're not high speed unless you have the CAR-15 version that's got the 10-inch 10, 10 barrel with the 6-inch uh, the flash suppressor dealy on it because it looks bad. It looks bad. And that's the kind that the special operations guys carry. So what I'm saying is it's making sure taking a good weapon and making a short version which is in many ways less efficient sometimes they've been less reliable and they almost certainly have more recoil more muzzle blast and just saying that that's the higher speed version that's the cooler better version over the longer barrel version which actually can shoot out to range a lot better has probably got more R&D put in it to make sure that it works right. And um, is all in all just very well balanced and well suited. And you see this even with Springfield Armory. You know, they make their SOCOM, Scout, whatever whatever those things are. The short-barreled, you know, 308, 7.62 NATO caliber M14 style rifle. Um, the short bar the worst one, the short-barreled Kalishnikovs. You know, the ones that you know, have to be an SBR, and they're cool because, you know, even though they shoot the same cartridge, they're harder, and these things are always harder to shoot. And this actually even goes back in time to, and maybe that's where it, maybe that's where it started as I'm thinking this through. You know, um, usually it was engineer troops, artillery, and cavalry, troops that were, had a more specialized function than infantry, uh, received these shorter weapons because they were never really firing in volleys and in ranks. And uh, up even until the early, up until World War I, most infantry rifles were still designed to do that. That's why they had the 30-inch barrels and, and all this, so you could still fire in ranks. Uh, completely, completely useless tactically, but, but that's, they were still thinking that that might still be viable. So the shorter, the shorter weapons... The Krag carbine and the engineer carbines and and all these other ones were thought about were thought of being more um, more for elite troops troops that had a more specialized skill and that's kind of translated over into uh, you know special operations especially World War Two you know submachine guns which were in in many cases a lot less effective than a country's main battle rifle. Uh, were, were thought about being, hey, this is more cool, and the guy wielding it is thus more cool, and, and on and on and on. So, you know, and I think that's gone to, to the modern times. Frankly, the reason I think it's the dumbest trend is I've never seen a shorter barrel rifle that outperforms, except in just size envelope, the longer barrel version. So actually, if you wanted to be more high speed and more cool and everything else, you would have a higher, you would have a longer barrel. The longer barrel you had the, would be the more, uh, the more cool you were. The, that's what the cool kids would want to have. But instead, it's just the opposite. This short, everybody's really fixated on these short, compact weapons. And, and frankly, everything that comes out, it'll come out as the standard model. And then there's the shortened version for whatever it is, anything from armored vehicle crews to paratroops to special operations to, you know, secret agents and, you know, all of this stuff. 
So that that's to me is the dumbest, the absolute dumbest uh, trend. You know, they even had that in some machine guns. Remember that the Uzi, which was excellent weapon. I mean, using the Uzi, and I haven't used one in years and years and years, but the Uzi is an excellent weapon, really is. But then they had to had the micro Uzi because smaller is better. This this fixation on miniaturizing it and making it better um, somehow that was better. It just doesn't it just doesn't really work. Um, really, when you look at the the older Car 15 and the M16A1, really the rifle you want is the M16A1. It really is. Um, and, and that's one of the reasons the Car 15 kind of went away after the Vietnam War. It just sort of, it just sort of faded away, and some of that was probably economic. Some of that was probably other reasons too. But, but I think part of it was it just didn't, it just wasn't better. And if it was, if they thought it was, it wasn't better enough to justify replacing the uh, the M16A1 or later the M16A2. So. Uh, the M4 kind of came out as an anomaly. Again, that that came out a special operations deal. Then the 82nd Airborne had to have it, and pretty soon the rest of the Army had to have it. Uh, it's been a very good rifle. I mean, I don't think that the... You know, it's amazing that we lost... What is that? Five and a half inches off the barrel, and you lose all of that performance. And then you have people carping. Well, the thing just doesn't have long enough range. Well, duh, that's because you went from a 20-inch barrel down to something that you knew would not shoot as far or have it would have the trajectory or wouldn't have the same velocity, you know? I mean, of course, of course you lost lost that for the sake of a few inches, the sake of a few inches, which, you know, is it enough to matter is the question you have to ask. So that's why I think shortening combat rifles is a very stupid trend. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty funny. Pretty funny. Okay. Oh, you are against red dot sights on pistols. Why is this? Well, the, the times I've actually handled them, and it's not that often, and it's not that often, I just don't like them. I just don't like them. I mean, I can tell when I'm shooting iron sights very very well because they just look like a rock they don't move i pull the trigger and outside of you know recoil the sights just don't move now when i'm really fatigued you know the 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 gun will jiggle around a little bit because my muscles have had it but you know i can really tell when i'm shooting iron sights well but boy you know acquiring that red dot and everything it just seems clumsy and clunky to me and uh I'm just not a fan of it. Just not a fan. Um, if you're just slinging ammo, and just throwing out throwing out rounds, I suppose it's fine. But to me, it would it would really be in its own where you're using it like a rifle, where you settle down, you take deliberate aim, and and there you go. Um, but it's it's just too bouncy and jiggly in a handheld platform for me to be really comfortable with it. Now there are a lot of people who use it, a lot of people who like it. And it's, it's the new hotness in the market right now or, you know, hey, you know, I've got a one. And every pistol coming out now has got this little plate you can take off and you can mount one of these things. But um, I'm, not, I'm not convinced that they're really going to, uh, outside of gaming, and if they're useful in gaming, they'll be useful in gaming. But I'm not sure they're going to be useful a lot of other places simply because, hey, are they zeroed? Is the battery still good? Is it quicker? It's you know they found this with lasers that people who would you know draw their gun, their lasers on, and they put it on target. Well, they spent more time looking to find that laser dot and making sure it was on the target than if they just used the iron sights and shot. So it could be that same kind of situation where it requires more effort to get it on target than if you just used iron sights. So there you go. Okay, next thing. If you had it to do all over again to prepare for COVID and now the urban riots, how would you do it? 
and I'm I'm kind of looking at and knowing the, knowing the ammunition. I'll just address the ammunition shortages. If I had it all to do over again, I would. Well, here's what I would recommend. Here's what I would recommend. That if you do not hand load, you need to start hand loading. Even if you don't want to hand load, you need to hand load. At least a couple of basic calibers. And 9mm is a great place to start. It's a great place to start. It'll be easy. Uh, you don't really have to trim the cases. You don't have to. Um, it doesn't take a lot of powder. And all the components... You can't find them now, but, but in normal times, the components are pretty inexpensive. And, uh, you know, if you shoot a lot of 9mm guns, you can make 9mm ammo. And if you've got 5,000 bullets and 5,000 primers, and you have, say, 2 pounds, would 2 pounds be enough? 2 to 3 pounds of powder. Um, yeah, I think if you had 3 pounds of powder... You could probably be good to go. Maybe even with two pounds of powder. There's 7,000 grains in a powder, and let's say you're using four grains. So 1,000 rounds would be 4,000. Yeah, if you had two, you could probably get away with two pounds of a powder like uh, HP 38, Winchester Western 231, which is essentially the same thing or bullseye, or some of the other equivalents to those. There, there are several of them out there. Yeah, you could probably figure that out. Figure out your powder charge that works in your gun. Figure out how many rounds you really want to be able to make. I mean, you get 5,000 bullets. Yeah, you'll spend some money on that, but 5,000 primers the same way. But you'll have it, and you'll be cranking out rounds and shooting when other people are sitting at home. So... That's what I would do. And then that's just one caliber. And you could actually, if you don't want to be a reloader like I am and, and reload for all kinds of different calibers, that's fine. I would I would say that 5.56 five, is another one. You know, you can, you can load that. Um, it's, it's pretty economical to load. It's, it's more economical to buy and a lot less hassle when you can get it at good prices. But when it isn't around and when the price gougers are out there, the ability to make your own gives you options and gives you freedom. So uh, I would have, I would keep two to three thousand five, five, six, fifty-five grain projectiles on hand. I would keep an eight pound keg of Accurate Arms 2520. I would keep as many primers as you have. So if you got 3000 3000 primers. And and hey, you're going to you're going to produce a lot of ammunition and that's it. Uh, you will have to if you're going to use cartridges, you should uh, trim them. So you got to buy the little uh, Dylan makes a great electric motor trimmer deal that fits on a press. You got to devote some room to to a press. But the nice part about that is you can you can um, you know if you if you want to be a prepper and you're prepping for you know the worst, you could even add a caliber to that. You could add seven six two NATO to that, kind of do the same thing. And, but I would I would go nine millimeter and five five six. I would store and have the stuff and store it. And you know the beautiful part is primers and powder, and of course bullets last a long time they last a long long time if you really want to get into it um, you can get lead you can get a whole bunch of lead and get molds lee molds and mold your own nine uh, millimeter bullets you know that's another thing you can do too if you don't want to it'll keep well you, you have to balance the investment out for yourself but um you know, and that way you can you can do you can do forty five ACP or thirty eight special also. You know, it's those are pretty, those are very easy calibers that don't have to be trimmed, and um, you know you can you can you can have bullets when other people don't. So, if I had it all to do over again, I would have bought more components, and I would be laughing hard at people now. I'm not laughing now because components are 
you know, the, the ammunition dries up first, then the components dry up. That's been the, uh, um, that's been the deal. But if you have a lot of components, hey, you can still continue to load and, um, you know, be, be going. When the guy runs out of ammo, he's out of ammo. That's, that's just the way it is. And, of course, every time this happens, we hope it's always going to be the last time. We hope this is never going to happen again. But it, it seems to. And it shows you how frail the supply chain for ammunition really is. I would have thought by now that there would be tall ammunition all over the market, that's, or some equivalent to that, where, where our manufacturers would have gone to an overseas plant in the old Soviet Union or the old Warsaw Pact and would say, run a 24-hour shift, we'll buy everything you can make and uh, load up freighters with it and bring it in. And uh, I only hope that there's there's a couple of those freighters inbound, because uh, right now it's it's uh, it'll come back, but it's going to be a process. Okay, here is another question: Is a really good spotting scope worth the investment? Um, it depends on what you mean by really good. Um, to me, a really good spotting scope which I do not own. I own something close, but not quite. A really good spotting scope can see 30 caliber holes in a target at 200 yards. Uh, a premium, excellent one can probably do it a lot farther out than that. So it depends how much money you have to spend. Now to buy a premium scope, you're really probably talking well over a thousand dollars, maybe even fifteen hundred dollars. Uh, my Vortex Diamondback, which is a nice scope, can't quite do what I really would like to have a spotting scope do. So I'm not entirely happy with it. Um, but really, but really, it was all I could afford. I mean, I can't afford the you know, and stay married uh, the fifteen hundred dollar um, spotting scope, and so. Uh, you know, for target shooting, the spotting scope is probably going to become less relevant as more of these electronic targets start taking hold. And right now they're out there and they're like 800 bucks. They're kind of like the lab radar, you know, that Doppler radar that, you know, five, four or five years ago, that was really super high speed. Now there's, you know, they're, they're around. People who need a, a chronograph have those. Those electronic targets will take hold. I would assume that they will get down somewhere in the $400 region. That's where they'll kind of bottom out, and then people can decide. That, that way they're competitive with a lot of the spotting scopes out there. So for target shooting, when that happens, hey, people would rather look at the little screen, and you can actually, yeah, you get you can on your tablet or even on your phone, and you can see where these things, where your holes are, and you don't have to optically try to look down through the mirage and and uh, worry about lens quality and all that as to what you're going to see. And as far as I know, you're at 600 yards, you get the same feedback as you do at 200 yards. So um, it's it's got that advantage also. It's moving electrons. It's not it's not optically worried about eyes and sweat and you know did. Is there a coating of dust on the lens? All those, all those problems go away if you're willing to deal with the electronic bullshit of these things of, you know, batteries, making sure it works, and, and all the rest. Uh, for hunting, there's going to be no substitute for a scope because there's obviously you've got to be able to see, and uh, that's that's the optical, that's the instrument. It's an optical instrument that'll do that. So I think a spotting scope for target shooting is going to become less relevant, and the for hunting it'll it'll remain the same. So that's what I think about those. Um, yeah, I mean I, it's tough to spend a lot of money and not get exactly what you want, and that's what a lot of spotting scopes are now, man. You, um, um, it's tough to get a top quality scope. Um, some of the nicest ones I've ever seen are Zeiss, and man, you can see the you can see the air disturbed by a bullet as it goes. I mean, it's just 
just amazing how good they are, but you really pay for that kind of performance. Okay, another question. How practical is Biden's proposal to put 30-shot magazines on the NFA? Okay, and I've actually discussed this with a couple of people before, so I'm glad, I'm glad this question kind of popped up. Uh, essentially, it's impractical. They will make them all illegal, illegal to possess, illegal to have, no, no grandfather, no end arounds. So they'll, they'll make them all illegal before they put them on the NFA. They're not going to try to serialize and put these things on the NFA. It's just not going to happen. They'll make them all illegal. Uh, because that's what the states have tried to do, um, even in California, New York. You know, they don't, they don't bother saying you need to register your pre-existing large capacity magazines they just say hey these things are now illegal that's what it goes sorry and um, so that's what they would do nationally they're just not going to put it on the NFA and I think they would cite that hey it's impractical you'd be trying to register millions of these things in a system that's designed for a few thousand things so that's what that's what it would be that's just what it would be so what do I think of the proposal? Well, of course, I think it's complete, complete uh, dog vomit. Um, and I think it's, but I think it's what they want to do to punish you and I for being, quote, you know, Trump supporting people. Even if you're not a Trump supporter, they're still going to punish you as a gun owner because they think you're a Trump supporter. So they're going to, this is the way they're going to punish gun owners. And it's going to be by taking a lot of things away. Uh, frankly, I don't know. A year from now, gun ownership could look very, very different. It could look very, very, very different. Because even if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, I have a very funny feeling that just like in just like in '94 when Bob Dole threw us under the bus, uh, they could throw us under the bus again to try to enrage the the base to to win to win back the Senate or win back the House. Um, I don't think they'll use their filibuster to to protect gun rights. It's just just not important to them. I do have kind of a, a little story. I mean, I used to, because I've always been into firearms since I was an early teenager, always been a big part of my life. What I never realized was that in the context of everything else, the gun culture is not really that large. It's not really that influential. And I remember it, one of the first California gun law deals, and I can remember thinking, wow, you know, there are a lot of big companies. That, that at that time, there were a lot of companies that not only imported guns, but, you know, did custom guns. And there were, there, you could go into very large gun shops in places in California that had a broad selection of all kinds of cool guns. And... Uh, I remember that I was driving on a freeway in Los Angeles, and I can't remember which one. But I looked down, and there was a place called Federal Ordinance, which, you know, old-timers will remember. They imported a lot of stuff. They kind of produced their own version of the M14, you know, kind of an M14. They produced M1 tankers, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. You know, the, the shortened barrel M1 Garands and all the rest of that kind of stuff. And uh, really, I, I remember thinking they, they were a really big outfit because they did a lot of business. They always had a big ad in Shotgun News and everything else. And I can remember I was driving on the freeway and I looked. I wasn't actually driving the car. I was in the passenger seat and I looked over. And lo and behold, I saw the Federal Ordinance. They had a storefront and a little warehouse. And against looking down on it with all of the other businesses in this giant kind of industrial area, I, I really kind of understood how small the gun industry and the gun culture really is. I, I looked at that and said, you know, these guys really aren't going to have any pull against any kind of anything. They're just another business in a sea of businesses. You know, they're a minnow in this ocean of businesses. And, you know, that's what it was. That's what it was. Uh, and, you know, all of the gun, you know, the NRA has been disproportionately effective, effective in standing up for our gun rights. 
you figure there's five, six million, and it's been this way for a long time. There's been five million members of the NRA. But you figure we have five million members in a country of 320 million people. That's a lot, but it's also not a lot. So, you know, the fact that we have our gun rights at all are, are really kind of amazing to me. Um, especially when you look at their the destruction of American institutions over the last 25 years. And it can go down to Boy Scouts, uh, churches, all kinds of things that were looked upon as good all of a sudden became evil. Well, all these people want us want to put the gun owners and especially the NRA in the evil category. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing that we, we still have we still have our gun rights. I mean, the guys who really were heroes, um, you know, Charlton Heston in the darkest days uh, stood up for gun rights. A lot of these guys stood up and were counted and were very powerful and influential. But we don't have the kind of numbers that uh, would really... Now, if we had 30 or 40 million members, yeah, we would probably... They, they would probably uh, be very, very influential. And we actually should, because there's so many gun owners in America now. Um, we should have. We should have 30 million members. There's no two ways about that. And the shooting sport should be a lot bigger and a lot better than what they are. So, anyway, that's my view on that. And again, this is... Another episode, the 80th episode of Old School Guns. Um, remember, you can always reach us, kbmakel at aol.com. And you can also leave comments or questions on Podbean. But until next time, this is Old School Guns, out. <laughs>